like the number one word on this set was search. You know, we all know the scene. We've we've talked about it. We've done a couple takes. Can we find anything else for the actress? It's just search. Keep searching. Yeah. Is there any other way to do this scene? Is there any? Is there some? Is there something else? Hello, and welcome back to the director's cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Ramin Barani's new crime drama, The White Tiger. Based on a best-selling novel, the film follows the rise of a poor Indian villager who wrangles his way into a job as a driver for a wealthy couple who have just returned from America. After a cruel betrayal, he rebels against a rigged and unequal system to rise up and become a new kind of master. In addition to The White Tiger, Mr. Barani's directorial credits include the feature films Fahrenheit 451, 99 Homes, Goodbye Solo, and Chop Shop, and episodes of Treadstone and Future States and the documentary series Independent Lens. Mr. Barani spoke with director Scott Cooper about filming The White Tiger in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hey, Ramin. Hey, how are you? Hey, man. Doing as well as, as, as can be expected. I got to tell you, man, I love your film. I found it uh, visceral and, and provocative and, and highly textured. I mean, this, this wonderful rags to riches parable. But more than that, it's, it's this really vibrant satirical commentary on India's caste system and, and one that in, indicts the inequities of Indian society. And, and, and I have to say, as a filmmaker, you are keenly attuned uh, to the working class struggle, which is why I love your film so much. Man, Pushcart, uh, Chop Shop, 99 Homes, on and on, you, you, you tend to give voice to those that cinema often overlooks and, and certainly White Tiger fits squarely into yeah. your body of work and, and, and couldn't be timelier. So I love the film. Let's, let's start at the beginning. It's not often I think, director. I think we have some of that in common because I love, first, thanks for doing this. I, I'm a huge fan of your films. And oh, thanks, I, I remember seeing Crazy Heart for the first time. And I, I think we share that a little bit, our interest in kind of those down and out characters. Um, but that, I mean, out of the furnace, man, that, that was awesome. And the way you work with actors and talent. Oh, thank just, you. It's incredible. And I'm, I'm so curious about your new one. The, oh, Antlers. The kind of, yeah, yeah well, Antlers. that certainly deals also with the, 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 the working uh, yeah. struggle and the kind of the breakdown of the nuclear family and how nature is taking its revenge on yeah. uh, the world, as it were. As, and well, it, quite timely, given that it's essentially... Um, taking it, its revenge out on us, even as we speak. Yeah, I'm curious to see you work in that, twisting the genre a little bit. Yeah, it's, while it fits into the horror genre, it, it's, it's um, I guess my goals for that film were for it to be uh, tense, um, disquieting, but human, uh, human yeah. at its center. So you'll be the judge, but it's coming out around Halloween, and I'm really excited. And working with Guillermo del Toro was, was amazing, but enough about me, Ramin. Um, <laughs> I love this film, as I've said. So let's start at the beginning because it's it's not often that a director has such a direct connection to the source material. So tell me if I have this correct, but Aravind Adiga, the novelist of White Tiger, and I love that novel. You and Aravind are classmates or friends, but he was inspired by 
man Pushkar? I mean, and this then led to him, his writing White Tiger, is that right? Well, I mean, he should say it, but yeah, we were classmates at, at Columbia University as undergraduates. Um, there was a group of us, Indians, Iranians, Lebanese, Afghans, Syrians, that you know, found one another. Yeah. And, um, you know, he wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a filmmaker. So we clicked on that and became friends. And you know, 25 years later, we still talk on the phone once or twice a week. And I think, yeah, I think he was inspired just by the kind of characters in Man Push Cart and Chop Shop and um, also the, the fact that they got made. You know, I, I didn't know anyone. Um, the movies just kind of came through a hustle, you know, hustle and hard work of, you know, meet people. And I think Man Push Cart, the budget was, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. But you'd also and, made a really remarkable um, short film, plastic bag with Werner Herzog as the voice. I, I wish no, Scott. I wish I had made that prior. My short films prior to Manfred Carter are terrible. Plastic bag I made after my third film, Goodbye Solo. No, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but I love that film. Thanks for mentioning. Oh, it's fantastic, Werner. Yeah, yeah. So then I think that somehow pushed Arvin to kind of get out of New York where he was working for Time Magazine, go to India as a reporter for Time in India and start traveling the country, meeting and talking to people, which is how I had come up with a lot of my films was just by going out there and talking and meeting people that I didn't know and worlds I didn't know. And that led to The White Tiger. And um, but when did you first read the novel? I mean, did you read, read it in galley form or in draft form, obviously? I got an email and well, we were tra trading our work all the time. He's been thanked. If you look at my films, he's been thanked in almost all of them because he was reading the script and talking to me for months and, and years while I was working on them. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so one day I got an email that was called The White Tiger, and it was chapters, the first chapters of the book. And I had read many of his other manuscripts that, that had not been published. Um, and it was just explosive immediately. You know, you just... I fell in love with it immediately, the themes, the characters, the story, especially Balram, you know, it was a first person narration. So yeah, it's so funny and witty and sarcastic. And I remember calling him and saying, my God, if this one doesn't get published, you know, both of us should just quit because this is incredible, you know? I found, I found the same thing. Uh, obviously I read it in its finished form, but so, it, so that first email, the, the first chapters that came through at that point, did you feel like this is something that I would love to adapt or something I would love to film? Or did you wait for him to finish? Did you give him any notes during this draft phase? Yeah, I, I, I can say I gave notes, but I don't want it to seem like anything unusual. He was giving me notes on my scripts also. Sure, yeah, you know? right. Um, just as colleagues do, as you, you trade scripts with your friends or yes. Guillermo reading your script, I'm sure. Yeah, um, yeah. and Christian Bale, he see, sees all of my films and gives me notes and reads scripts. All yeah. the things that he's not in. So, so we all tend to do that. Yeah, totally. And so um, then it, the book was published and it came out in 2008. In fact, when he won the Man Booker Prize, I was in London screening Goodbye Solo. We met in the street the next day, like right there we were suddenly by chance in London. And um, I always wanted to make it into a film. It's been 15 years I've wanted to make it. At that time, it didn't seem the right moment for a few reasons. And um, one of them was how would the budget come together? And also looking back on it, I'm glad I didn't have a chance to make it then because I, I don't think as a filmmaker, I would have understood how to tackle it. I don't um, think I would have, I don't think I was ready to make it then, you know? Mm -hmm. I think back then I probably would have made it a sliver only 
and I would have eliminated his tone and I would have made it more like more realism of my early, my three first films, you know? Well, I'll get to that. The tone, which is critical to its success, I think finding the balance that you found is, is incredibly difficult, but you did it beautifully. Oh, thanks. That was a conversation the whole way through in the writing process with the producer in India, McCool, my, and then my main creative partner, uh, Bahara Azimi. She's a French Iranian woman who co-wrote Chomp Shop, Goodbye Solo and 99 Homes. And she's one of the producers on this. I mean, her and I, God knows how much we talked about tone in the script stage. And then once I was on the ground in India, it was basically the number one conversation with the creative department heads for the whole prep and then during the shoot. And I would say weirdly, I don't know what you're like on, on Fed Scott. I, I hope one day I could join you. Maybe on the new film you were telling me about earlier, I'd love yeah. to just visit if it's possible. Um, yeah, because so often we don't see other directors. No, in the world. no never. I, 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 my friend David Green was shooting down the street once since I saw him. And then Werner invited me to Bolivia. I was with Werner for one of his films for weeks shooting wow. down there, which was awesome. Amazing. Um, yeah. But, you know, Normally, I don't have a lot of fun when I'm shooting. I'm more serious and focused. But this film, because of the tone of the novel, which was fun to read, even in the second half, I know it gets darker in the second half of the film and the novel too. Somehow it was enjoyable read. Like you read it quick and I wanted to enjoy it. And somehow I, I found myself enjoying the shoot in ways I had never enjoyed before. Wow, that's fantastic. Especially, well, in a film as epic and sprawling as this with... Yeah. with I mean, shooting, and I'll get to a couple of scenes that I really love that, that you're shooting, well, it appeared to me without any crowd control. I'll get to that. But Oh, I'd love to tell you is, about those scenes. Which is not easy to do. I mean, even with crowd control, it's not easy to do. But um, beyond the first person narration, which you did in paper bag, but, but it's, it's really critical here. I mean, because it's dark and it's funny and it's twisted. It gives us context and it gives us detail. I mean, was there ever a, a, a time where you said you were not going to use that, that voiceover? No. Okay, good. Because it's the novel's first-person narration and the voice that Arvind wrote is so specific and so funny and so subversive and so the perspective is so unique. Yes. It was never off the table. We talked a little bit about what if it wasn't a, an email to Wen Bao, but I wanted to keep that too because that's also very specific to that time that India and China were on the rise then in, in that period. Yes. Um, the West was on the decline. And honestly, I like, I also like it because it, well, one, there's certain things that Balram is saying that he wouldn't have to say to an Indian audience, but he needs to say to Wen Chai Bao. That makes sense, yeah. And I also like it because it, I remember I showed it to a friend of mine, a director friend here in New York, he's a white person. And I remember he said, why doesn't the narration just be to us? And immediately I thought, would who is us actually? Because in this case, it's to, in Balram's own words, a yellow man. It's to a, it's to a Chinese person in, in, in Asia. And I like that because it destabilizes who's at the center of the world the way the novel did. And it's just so weird. Also, Scott, I, I like doing things in movies that I'll never have a chance to do again. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like in 99 Homes, I will never make a movie about eviction. When am I ever going to have that opportunity to tell that story? Never again. And here, I don't think I'll ever make a movie where the narration is an email to Wen Jai Bao in China. It's so nutty. 
No, I know, and I love that framing, uh, part, which is in the novel. But you, you ultimately, you, you always knew that you had to keep this framing device, right? Oh it's yeah. Writing this letter to to when who's visiting Bangalore for a tech conference, right? He, he's coming to understand what it means to be an entrepreneur in India, and Balram thinks that the government's going to tell him everything upside down, and he wants to put it the way he thinks it really should be told by telling him the story of his life. You know what it means to be an entrepreneur in India. Yeah. Well, I love that you that you kept the film in 2010 and then you backtrack the three years it leads up to yes. when you start the film. Yeah. As opposed to telling that story now. I mean, keeping I, if I told it now, really um, important. yeah, it, it was a totally different time for the country. I mean, in two, 2007, India was, you know, bullish and confident as a country, as an economy, as a people. And right now they're not as much, right? The, the China took off, but India slowed a little bit. Right. And also I toyed with setting it now, but then suddenly Balram had an Instagram page and he was sending videos and I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to be closer to the novel. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. and, and speaking of the novel, what are the challenges of adapting that particular novel, but also adapting the novel of a friend, which is very different than adapting enough someone you don't have that close relationship to i i loved it because um well arvin very early on said this will be your first screenplay that i'll never read i don't want to read it oh wow yeah i don't want to read it i trust you completely and you have the right to do anything change whatever you want it won't bother me at all do whatever you want it's totally yours do you understood the difference between a novel and a film yeah i mean he loves movies um, his other novels are also very cinematic, Last Man in Tower, Selection Day, which was made into a series in India, a local language series, and Amnesty, his last novel that came out right before the pandemic. It, got, it was a lot of top 10 lists, but then it kind of got lost in the shuffle of everyone went into lockdown. But sure. um, yeah, he gave me the full freedom to do anything. And um, of course, when he finally saw the movie when it was done, I'm, thank God he liked it, you know. Well, I mean, look, you've retained that kind of wonderfully playful and sarcastic tone, like we, uh, which is critical and, and, and achieving that balance is, I mean, from every department head to your performers, I mean, you're trying to keep that tone while the film is exploring this kind of uneasy tension between this, you know, very deferential, but ambitious and, and cunning and in the end kind of cold blooded driver in, in Bowerum and the, the wealth, wealthy master that he serves. I mean, it's kind of a clashing of tradition and, and modernity. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Well, it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I know you said you love the novel and I know a lot of people who loved it, but I would admit, I know some people who were turned off by it because Balram killed that guy and the novel kind of, it certainly doesn't condemn him. It, I don't want to say it celebrates him, but it, it, it kind of does, right? Um, you're a bit ambiguous how you feel about him in the end, but you still kind of like him, or at least I, I did when I read it. And um, that was always a fear. Like, would people, would a, a, an average audience member who watches the film be turned off by what he did, or would they get it? Would they empathize with it? And that was And what have, you, what have you heard from people who've, who've seen it? I mean, honestly, it's working. I mean, I think it was, I think it was the number one most watched film on Netflix globally last week. I see why. That's fantastic. And it's you're getting reactions from, because I'd never released a film on Netflix. So it's like, 
People in Nigeria are going crazy about it. Um, you can imagine in Southeast Asia, people love it or in the Middle East, but also it's kicking How's ass. it playing in India? It's been number one in movie or series since it opened. But also it's, it's doing incredibly well in England and in the US, you know, and in Brazil, you know, anywhere. It's, it's really crazy, this platform. Well, it's a metaphor for, I think, this universal class divide, right? This socioeconomic yeah. divide that, that's only increasing every day through, through uh, systemic racism and obviously the, the pandemic. Um, and, and, and you've got this, this central metaphor, which I love, of course, the, the rooster coop, right? Where yeah. you've got the haves and the have-nots who are crowded together, who are kind of pecking and squawking and, yeah. and essentially waiting to see who's slaughtered next. So you that, kind of yeah. pretend where this is going to go through that metaphor. That was fun to film. I say, would say, like, because, well, that metaphor is in the novel. It's, Arv it's all Arvind, and, but it comes in the middle of the novel. It comes after the forced confession, but I moved away up front. Here, I think at a great time. Yeah, I, can, I brought it up front to guide people on what, yeah. what's going on. And it was just fun to visualize it, you know, um, seeing that guy riding his bicycle, the, the, um, the rickshaw puller pulling the furniture and that all that mass of people. Yes, you know, sure. and going to the this is where it's great to know the author because when you're, you're like, where is the rooster poopy? Like, you, you got to go to Chama Masjid in Old Delhi, and that's where it, that's where it is. And so he had advised me just go to certain places and travel by bus and by foot, get out of the air conditioned chauffeured car, and and see it. You know, well, it felt like I was seeing the world through the eyes of a servant and not a master, of course, until we get into, into the, into those high rises. The, the yeah, perfect. That's what I was hoping you would but see. That's, that's that. the way that I felt it. And then you've got the other metaphor of the title, the white tiger and, and yeah. this rare once in a generation phenomenon that, uh, in a country defined by, you know, rigid inequality. Whereas we have the kind of self made man as a beast. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Which leads me to these two scenes that I, that I really love. One yeah. is where, and I know this is a spoiler for people who haven't seen this, so you might want to mute this, uh, where Balram brushes his teeth for the first time. I love know, it. Kind of getting rid of the past and starting <laughs> anew, right? Like creating this, this, this a new chance at life. I, I, it's, I'm so glad you mentioned it because this is one of my favorite scenes in the novel. And it was a scene I was so excited to film, but I, I never thought people would, I thought people would enjoy, think it's a good scene or whatever, but you're not the first person who's mentioned it to me as among their favorite scenes of the film, which I actually never expected. And um, it's, honestly, it's, it starts with Arvin's great novel and writing because, you know, he, at that moment, the character is, I think for the first time, understanding or realizing self-realization that he was raised poor, that that's actually different than other people. And, um, and that's, you know, when he's realizing, oh, my, my, my dad never taught me. Why not? Why that's didn't I learn? Right, or why I needed to. Yeah. The part that for me goes one step further, again, because of the great, Arvin's great writing is when he says, when, as he's spitting the toothpaste out, if only a man could spit his past out I know. so easily. And I remember when I read that, I felt it so deeply that we've all daydreamed, you know, what would it be like if we had been raised in it? You're from Virginia, I'm from North Carolina. What if we had been raised somewhere else? What if our parents had been different? 
What if our skin color was different? What if our economic standing had been different? What if, what if? this idea that there's the, the past is some kind of a burden that is very hard to shake off. I well, feel like feeling it in that moment. Because you hang on that, that, that close up of him and you see the toothpaste that's just still lining, caking his, his lips and his mouth. And it's just, yeah. it's really a strong and evocative image. And then- Can I tell you about one more thing about that scene? Yes, please. I had all my shots lined up. What I, I knew what I wanted. I had written, I don't do storyboards, but I typically do a floor plan or a, and or a shot list. Yeah. And then I like to change things based on the actors. I, I don't like to put marks down. I like the actors to have freedom to roam and Same. It, yeah, figure it out on their own. And it's often what you think and you've already got the shots and whenever they change it, if it doesn't destabilize the structure of the movie, but it makes the actor feel better and bring some magic, I will change my shots for them, you know? But, and I remember I was there and for whatever reason, I was thinking of a Kiarostami film who I love Kiarostami's movie. Yeah, me too. Wind Will Carry Us. And there's a scene where the guy's brushing his teeth and he brushes his teeth straight to the straight into the camera. Oh, much like you do here. Yes, but I remember it suddenly it came into my mind while we were shooting because I was surprised Kiarostami used that technique in that film. Because I didn't know if it... I hadn't seen him do that in his other um, narrative films, maybe in his more experimental work. And um, then I added the shot in, in thinking of Kiarostami in that moment. What's well, beautiful because it really puts us in his headspace, even yeah, though we're totally. hearing his voiceover, but, but it, yeah. it, it feels as though you're really living inside all yeah. of it. And then the other scene, speaking of crowd control and, and one that I was just riveted and the performance is remarkable, uh, was when Bautram is, is, Bautram is confronted by the beggar woman. I love this scene. You know, you know what it's like. You edit the movie, and um, it, this was weird because of the pandemic. So my editor was in his home, and I was editing alone in the editing room for however many months, six, seven, eight months. You're seeing it over and over again. You're getting numb to it. I didn't have the chance of bringing people into the room and watching with them, so I was becoming numb. But there were two scenes that always moved me. One is the forced confession, and one is this beggar woman. Jesus, yeah. And it's because of him. It's because of the actor. He's and, remarkable, and I want to get to him. He's really yeah. outstanding. Oh, he's, he's, he inspired me every day. Like, he, I wanted to be better be, to match him, you know? That confession and, scene is heartbreaking. Which one? The confession? Yes. Oh, yeah. Forced confession. It's yeah. heartbreaking. My God. Yeah. But let's talk about the cast because... The, the, well, let me tell you about this beggar scene. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. So, Adarsh, the actor playing Balram, um, he came to me as he often did pretty much every day and said, Rami, Rami, I have this idea I want to try. I want to do. And then I would say, don't tell me. Don't tell me what you want to do. Just do it. I believe in you. You can do anything on my set. You have free, free reign, whatever you want to do. I'll, I'll figure it out. The operator knows. We all know people can do whatever they want. Just, I want to witness it at the monitor. Like I'm an audience seeing it for the first time. Surprise me. You know, yeah. I'll enjoy it. And so we got rid of the whole crew. Um, just the operator and sound. Um, there's nobody else. This is a live and totally live environment in the most crowded part of Delhi called Old Delhi. And um, the only actor is him and the beggar woman. So I just went to the beggar woman and said, I don't know what he's going to do. In the script, he's just supposed to shoo her away in the scene end. And of course, he does something more explosive. Mm. And um, I said, I don't know what he's going to do, but whatever he does, whatever it is, just keep asking for the money. Just keep repeating it over and over again. 
and say, I'm hungry. I want the money. I right want That's all, whatever he does. And then he did what he did, where he just gives the gift to you as a filmmaker and, and an audience because he pulls the entire street into the movie. How many takes? Uh, I did one take from this, this side and I did one from On him. Yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> he shouted at those police in the end. We, at the, the, when the take was done, we had to go stop the police because they were angry with him and they wanted to, I don't know, arrest him or question him because he was shouting at them. And, you know, it's incredible what he did. That's yeah. a remarkable moment in the film and, and really, really wonderful performance by him and the beggar woman and everybody in the street who, like us, are quite shocked to see this play out. Yeah, they're just watching it. Those are the moments that you know from your own films, it's better to just create an environment of total freedom, that your crew has to be on that page and that the actors know they could risk. And if they risk and fall, it doesn't matter. You'll pick them up and they'll risk again. You know? But what I'll say about your cast, and, and when you have a large cast like this, it's... it's um, it's often difficult to keep all of the actors in the same key, but here you've got Adarsh Gurab, who's amazing. You've got a notable Bollywood star in, in Raj Kumar Rao, right? And then you have who American audiences know in Priyanka Chopra Jonas. And then you've got the mongoose and the stork and granny and everybody yeah. else. But the performances are all very uh, authentic and lived in and everybody's in the same key. And it's kind of remarkable that, that you have this cast. How did you find Adarsh and, and everybody else? How did they come to the movie? Um, Adarsh, you know, that, that role, I think because of the, the novel and then, you know, wanting to make it, there were a lot of people who wanted that part, um, including awesome actors I love in the diaspora, um, mm -hmm. Indian diaspora in the West and also in, in Bollywood. And I was interested in that for a while. Um, and I want to work with all those people, but being in India for a, a couple of months of researching, it was just, I thought this guy coming out of nowhere, this common man, this, this kid from a village, this poor kid, I just thought it needs to be someone who lives in India, who's from India, who's there, and preferably isn't a star already. Um, yeah, but just a, yeah, like a, a working actor, an actor, like in America would be the actor who's, you know, at a, um, restaurant doing a wait, waiting tables trying to make it one day you needed that kind of person and um he came in the door and i just liked him immediately he had that smile which draws you into him oh, i needed him to be fantastic because of what he's going to do in the film i needed somebody that you quickly like and empathize with and want to be around but then when he wasn't smiling i wasn't sure what he was thinking about so he had that duality i needed and um when I like an actor in a room, in an audition, I immediately start reading myself with them and I immediately go off book without saying anything just to see, will they, are they listening? Are they gonna go off book with you? Are they just gonna regurgitate the lines and not hear what you just said? And he went beautifully off book and whichever direction I took it, he was with me and oh, coming great. up with stuff. And so he, he was awesome and he put in the work. He, um, he went and lived in a, in a village anonymously for a few weeks. Um, he didn't tell anyone who he was. He just met one person that he befriended that took him down there. Um, he worked in a tea stall in Delhi for several weeks. Um, he got a job. It took him, it took him a while to find it because he refused to show his ID. He just introduced himself as Balram and uh, worked in a tea shop making about, you know, 100 rupees a day, which is like a nickel or something for 12 hours a day. And 
came to learn what it means to be invisible and what it means to be that character. Mm. Um, so he was awesome. And then Raj Kumar Rao, I, I loved, he's a huge actor for people who don't know him. He's a, a movie star. He'd be like saying Christian Bale plays the yeah. supporting role in the movie. He's fantastic in the film. He's, he's effortless somehow, you know? Yes. Um, he's done big, huge films, but he's also done these great character films like um, City Lights and Newton. And I um, met him, we got along, we clicked immediately. He wanted to do it and um, he was great. He was also really good in improvisation. He was totally prepared. He got an accent coach and he did all that stuff he wanted to do to get ready. And then Priyanka, she, she's known in the West, but not the way she's known in India. In India, she's a, a, known as a very talented actress. And I had seen those films and I knew she had that potential, but hadn't been given that opportunity in the West yet. And um, she came out, yeah, she, she came after me actually. She knew the novel, she's producing films in India and, and in the West now. And an executive producer here. Exactly, yeah. And she's trying to do socially relevant, interesting projects. Um, we clicked, I liked her a lot. And we, um, eventually I said, you know, would you be willing to read, but just me and you, doesn't have to be in a room. I'll, I'll bring an iPhone, I'll play ballroom. And she said, 100%, I'll do whatever you want. Well, why not? And her instincts were awesome in that iPhone reading, you know, that we did together. Wow. And um, they were generous. Pinky, Priyanka and Raj Kumar, who were stars, they treated Adarsh like he was a, a gem and they were, they, you feel, I think in the movie, you can feel they liked each other. Um, so they got along. Oh, it comes across. And, and yeah, they like each other. We have a, yeah. we have a WhatsApp thread now, the four of us. And, you know, there's so much attention on Adarsh. And in every interview, Priyanka and Raj Kumar keep saying he's the star of the movie and we were so happy to work with him. So that's how egoless they were. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But they're also really, really first rate. And, and they're all, oh, Priyanka and some of those scenes is incredible. Really. Yes, yes. No, no one's seen high. that from her in the West. I think it's going to change her career in the West. Oh, I, I'm certain of it. I really only knew her more of uh, as, as kind of a celebrity figure. But I knew That's she was right. a, a, an actress and quite a good one. I just hadn't quite seen her work. In um, India, she's done 50 movies. And um, terrific. it's actually, it's a riot. If, if you go and try to film in a, in a live environment with her, you can't. It was really, we had some real restrictions around it. It was, even the security said, we can't control it. Speaking of Indian stars, one of my favorite directors is Sajid Ray. Which, which of course reminded me of, of some of the film, but I gotta be honest, it, it, it felt, I could feel more of the influence, and I know this might sound crazy, of Scorsese, like Goodfellas and Henry Hill and the voiceover yeah. and Taxi Driver for obvious reasons, but I felt more of that influence than Ray's. That yeah, I mean, 100%. Ray, Sante Jagre I love, it was a huge influence on me early on. Um, in fact, Arvind and I, went and saw a bunch of Ray films, Scorsese and Merchant Ivory had restored nine, I think nine of his films. I believe it was the summer of 94, 95. We were at Columbia and we would go to every two weeks, they would show a new film at uh, the late great Dan Talbot cinema oh. in New York on 63rd. And we would walk, we would take a subway down, see the movie, and then we would walk back to 106th Street, 116th Street talking about this Ray film we would watch every two weeks. But yes, here, I would say for voiceover, it was 
Kind Hearts and Cornets, Jules Gym, Fight Club, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. It was how I was trying to understand voiceover. And then for shooting the film, yeah, I, I did look at Goodfellas um, because it's an epic story that goes from childhood to yes. a main portion of adulthood, but then it has that last crazy section, right? Um, the, the drugged out part. And it has, um, it has that epic story. It has the narration. It has the moral crisis. There are enough things in it. It has specificity of culture that you may not know, mm. right? Like how they, they help us understand that. How they slice the garlic or whatever. So um, I looked at that for, for sure. A uh, taxi driver. I always assumed Arvin had been watching Taxi Driver, at least to some. We talk about Taxi Driver a lot. He and I. Um, yeah, I can so, feel the influence in, in the best of ways. Yeah. A Taxi Driver has a lot of Dostoevsky in it, which Arvind and I always talked about. And I know that that was important for Schrader going from Taxi, from, you know, Notes from the Underground, Crime and Punishment, Pickpocket, you know, Taxi Driver. And um, I also was looking at Kieslowski, uh, Decalogue 1 and 5. Oh, I love that series. Those ten there's, fantastic. there's something about the way he uses the lens in, in relationship to the actor or, and or landscape that I creates, that. yeah, it has a psychological effect. Yeah. You know? Well, brushing teeth or yeah. moments with granny. Yeah. Um, or even the, the, the forced confession even. Yes. Um, Sometimes a, a little bit in the murder because the murder, I knew I wanted it um, mainly handheld for it to be real and visceral, but then I wanted that other shot, which is in there, which is that wide, let's say medium to longer lens wide shot at 96 frames, mm. because I wanted it to also be epic. Like I wanted you to feel he really killed that man, but I also wanted you to feel a servant has killed his master or has killed a society that has that kind of relationship. I was trying to have both emotions and feelings in one moment. So that was the reason to jump to that shot. Boy, did you succeed. It's really a powerful sequence, even though we, we know we have a sense of, of what's upcoming. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've taken this ride with uh, Balram and, and you really are feeling for him and, and you understand him. And then, and then this very cold-blooded side comes out. It's, it's tough to take, but I think necessary. Uh, and you and, uh, and Paolo Carnera, first time you, you've worked together? Paolo, he's awesome. Um, how did you yeah. How did you come to, to work with him? He's an Italian veteran. I really like the series Gamora, based Gamora. on the movie Gamora. Yeah. And um, so I had someone ask me to shoot a TV pilot a couple of years ago. And I thought Paolo would be awesome to shoot that pilot. I thought he would bring a new, different feeling to it, based on what I had seen in Gamora and also a few of his feature films. I mean, he's a veteran. He's done a lot of films. Yeah. And um, so I, he said yes. I brought him out. To Budapest, we shot that pilot for me because I thought it'd be great for the pilot, and I thought if I like him, it'd be great for the film. So at the end of the the last week of shooting in Budapest, I said, "Hey, what do you think about going to India next year?" And he's like, "Yes, I'll do it." And I said, "Great." <laughs> so he was awesome to work with. Um, you know, we talked about it's an epic story, so we talked about how each part of the film could have a different look and feel. You know, so the the village was predominantly handheld. Even if there was dolly work, it was dolly handheld. Um, it's got a more of a 16 grain on it. Um, yeah, it's obviously, it was a dusty place. And then 
when he gets to that next place in Donbad, that villa, that white villa, that was wider lenses, dolly, a lot of dolly, some steady cam. Yeah. But a different feeling. Yeah. You want to see him in that environment, that huge environment. Um, and then Delhi, it was a lot about upstairs, downstairs, you know, and I love the servants in that. I, I, I relate more to them who live in the yeah. garage. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that was like, you know, looking at Chris Doyle, Fallen Angels, mm. in terms of like those piss yellows and weird purples. Um, and then Bangalore, when he's a master, it was about, which frames the thing, but it, that, that, that is some Scorsese. That, that's like steady cam for his confidence. He's in control. He, he dictates the movements. The movements give him energy, give him confidence, give him power. And so there was a lot of movement, a lot of Dolly and Steadicam movement there to create energy and power for him and the character and confidence. But he, throughout, a lot of the camera, in, well, in certain areas was about playful, how to be playful. Like even in the village, he wants to say that his family sleeps together. So it's kind of like, you know, a quick pan over from some sleeping people to other sleeping people, you know, just to give it some, some life and some, some fun, some playful energy, which is of course very different than the forced confession, which was about one. It makes it that much more powerful when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that play, that playful tone, um, if it were, if it were all darkness, it would be, it would be a tough film. I think so. Yeah. It would be too, too much. That was from the book. The book's funny, you know? <laughs> My films are sometimes too tough. I need to take a page out of your this, playfulness. Uh, well, we say that, but look, uh, I love your films, and 99 Homes is pretty rough. That's like a... Yes, it is. Yeah, so. I recommend for anyone who hasn't seen that, who's listening to this or watching this uh, virtual Q&A to, to seek that film out. Well, all of your films, but that, that's, that's a tough film, but really beautiful, wonderful. Um, Chad Keith, whom you've worked with a few times as production yeah. designer as opposed to using someone who's Indian. Um, I think that's a really interesting choice. And, and his work's fantastic. Such a vivid sense of place and, and yeah, he, so well chosen. Yeah, Chad's first film was my third film, Goodbye Solo. And um, he did Plastic Bag that you mentioned, my short film with Werner. But it, interestingly, Paolo and Chad and an DGAAD were the only people that I brought with me. Um, I mean, of course, Paolo brought an AC and then India told Paolo, bring a DIT and Steadicam, you need to bring those people. But then 90, 99% of the crew was Indian. So every other department head and every other crew member was Indian. The gaffer who was awesome, Rob, the key grip, Karam, the costume designer, um, uh, Shmirti, the, my amazing casting director, Tess Joseph, the production team led by Rakesh, they were all Indian, the whole crew was Indian. You know, I just brought these four or five people with me, which I, I, it was kind of a conscious choice. And it was a different experience for me because typically when I'm making a movie, it's like I'm the only brown person or maybe the only brown person around. And this time I turned around and everybody looked like me except for- oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> it was kind of cool. Yeah. And um, because I, I, I lived in Iran for three years of my adult life, my parents are from Iran. My dad comes from a village very much like Balram's. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, he didn't have electricity or running water till he was six or seven. And, and um, I've been in that village. Personal. Yeah, I, I've been in that village. I've lived in that village. I've heard that story my whole life. You just change the 
water buffalo a donkey. You know, that. like Balram hugs that water buffalo. I know that to be true because my dad would hug the donkey if he could. You know, that's the they grew up with those animals. You know, um, so that made it very easy for me to connect to it. You know. Well, you usually cut your films, or you certainly have, uh, but here you work with uh, Tim Strito. How was that collaboration? Because the film is, is really wonderfully cut, and it's clear that the two of you focus on character and story, and the, you know, the film prepare, propels the narrative forward where it needs to, but it lingers where it needs to. I mean, I think it's really beautifully cut. Yeah, it was great to work with Tim. Um, this was my seventh feature. I've cut four of them alone, and three of them I cut with another person, another editor. And he was great. He, he put the assembly together while, while I was shooting. I think he was done about 10 days after I got back from India. And, um, I got lucky when I came back, I live in Brooklyn. So I moved the whole team from company three in Manhattan to a four bedroom apartment in Brooklyn near where I lived. And we all were working there together. Um, I was, I was editing in one room, Tim was editing in another, our assistant editors were there. Everyone was there until March 14th. And everyone went away and um, I was the only one that would go there because I could walk there and all, all the team, including Tim, were working at home. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So it was like we were just kind of learning, learning on our feet. What does it mean to work remo remotely? And sometimes we were just I would sometimes film my screen with WhatsApp and WhatsApp three versions of the same scene to people. <laughs> what, what do you think of this edit? This, this or this, A, B or C, you know? And um, I mean, it's really wonderfully cut. And I like editing, Scott. It's oh, my favorite. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite part of the process is editing. Well, it's funny. Most directors that I, uh, who I'm friendly with, tell me that shooting is their least favorite um, part of shooting. And and like you, I write my films, so I really love writing. And I'm kind of editing as I'm writing. And I actually love shooting. And I mean, I love all three disciplines. But um, I like writing the least. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. I think so. I don't, I don't dislike it, but it's not my favorite. I, I like shooting when the actors are inspiring, like on this film or like, you know, someone like Mike Shannon or Michael B. Jordan, yeah. when you click with them, it's just awesome to work with them. And for me, more than anything, to be surprised. I love that. Like the number one word on this set was search. You know, we all know the scene. We've, we've talked about it. We've done a couple takes. Can we find anything else for the actress? It's just search, keep searching. Is there any other way to do this scene? Is there anything we haven't found in this scene? You know, is there, is there some, is there something else, you know? And I'm thinking about that too, just searching, searching. Could we find anything else? And sometimes you, honestly, sometimes you don't. It's just kind of what you've been preparing for, but often there is another way to do it. There is some other level to the scene. And um, I'm trying to create that environment with the, cast and the crew of searching sure. well and your music don't say, has um, such a really interesting effect it's kind of juxtaposed against the setting and you and you the score much like Balram, is kind of modern and edgy yeah and then you also have some tracks by jay-z and the gorillas and yeah. that show I mean, that era really yeah. inspired soundtrack yeah um, that, that really makes the whole film and the characterization just coalesce i think in a really memorable and powerful way yeah that was fun um michael hill my music supervisor on a, on a few of my films now he helped put that score together and then we were struggling to find a composer um i, I just couldn't find things that would click you know i don't know why and it took a while 
I, I, for the first time in my career, I brought in a music editor really early. Mm. Um, How early? Oh man, I, I, um, after the, after or before the director's cut, I mean, months before picture lock, Yeah. months and months before. And he helped, he helped figure out what I was responding to. And then he was able to start as, as a lot of music editors are composers too, or they're musicians or they have some experience. He started putting, like, I would tell him things like, I, I like that track, but can you add a nay, which is a, this Persian instrument, or I like that, but could you add a daft, which is a, a Middle Eastern drum sound? And he would then go find them and he would layer them in. And then eventually Michael Hill and found me Danny and Sonder. Mm-hmm. Danny and Saunders are, they're awesome. Their credits, you know, run a mile long and um, they nailed it. They were so good at creating a, as you said, edgy, modern, not traditional, atmospheric, you know, character. With them, it was always, what is the character? How is this about character? How is this about character? How is this about character? You know? Well, together, you and your cast and crew found such a truthful and memorable and bold and provocative and 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 film that I know will will stand the test of time. I love it, and I'm so glad that we got to chat. Thank you. I love your films, and keep up the great work, man. I, I'll be looking for whatever's next from Amin Barani. Thank you so much. I'll, as you know, I'm a fan of your films. I'm waiting for Antlers, and I want to talk to you about that other project you mentioned to me. That yes, yes. That sounds awesome. Congrats, man, and best of luck with this. I I love it. Thanks, Scott. All right, see you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Eliza Hittman, Sam Levinson, and Miranda July. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.